Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, get 30, bet get 20, 20, 20, bet get 20, 20, bet get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Before starting today's show, I'd like to announce a change in how I'm taking donations. Your support is vital to this show, and though my operation is a small one, library memberships, servers, and websites don't come free. This is a listener-supported podcast, and so any donations that you can give will always be greatly appreciated. Now, up till now, I've been taking donations directly via my website, but I have been receiving some feedback asking if there was a way for people to give a small monthly sum rather than one flat donation. Therefore, I've set up an account on Patreon, a voluntary subscription service that allows listeners to contribute directly to creators like myself. You can either give a one-off amount, just as before, or send in as little as one US dollar per month. There are some perks, but really the main thing is that if I can raise enough money, I can justify making the podcast weekly. And how great would that be? If you're interested, go to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast and check out the page. There is, of course, a link in the show notes as well. To that end, I would like to thank listeners Sarah from Chicago, Hannah from Sheffield, and Megan from Location Unknown, for their very kind and generous support. Hannah, in particular, has been one of my longest-suffering listeners, going way back, I think, to the Anglo-Norman days, and I am extremely grateful for her continued patronage and support. You can find a record of my appreciation on the new Wall of Thanks section of my website at queensofenglandpodcast.com. If you're currently pinching your pennies, then never fear, this show is free for now and forever. Other ways that you can support the show include leaving a review on iTunes, or even just liking my Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, where I post notices of new episodes, plus any other random Queen stuff that pops into my mind. If you wish to contact me with any questions or corrections, then you can find me at queensofenglandpodcast at gmail.com, or through the contact form on my website. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England Podcast. Episode 33... And Neville, heiress, princess, duchess, and queen. So after two hefty three-part miniseries on the great queens of the Wars of the Roses, Margaret of Anjou and Elizabeth Woodville, we are moving on to Anne Neville, a woman who, perhaps more than anyone, had her entire life ruled by the changing fortunes of the Yorkist cause. Her life and reign were far shorter than that of her two predecessors, and therefore so is this podcast's treatment of her, 
but that does not make her any less interesting or important. In the historiography, the word that one frequently finds used to describe Anne is tragic. She is seen as being the perennial victim of war, her horrible, horrible husband, and the trials of medieval motherhood. And yet, if we move away from this very easy narrative, we uncover a woman who is far more interesting and of far greater personal agency than on first inspection. The series on Elizabeth Woodville started before Anne was born and ended long after she died, so now, for one final time, we need to wind the clock back, where once again we find ourselves in the fire of the Wars of the Roses. The year is 1456. England's possessions in France were lost, Henry VI had been laid low by mental illness, Margaret of Anjou had just given birth to her son, Edward, Prince of Wales, and, most importantly for us, a child was also born to Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, and his wife, Anne Beauchamp. Now, Warwick, of course, needs no introduction, but I'll give you a quick one anyway, just to refresh your memory. A member of the hugely powerful Neville family, whose ancestral lands were largely based in the far north of England, he had become Earl of Warwick in 1448, after his wife Anne Beauchamp, who was the sister of the former Earl, inherited the title. Warwick, who before that had been Earl of Salisbury after inheriting that title from his father, was an incredibly rich landowner. Though he had not amassed the fortune yet that he would in later life, the union of the two earldoms meant that Anne was born with the very purest of silver spoons stuck right there in her mouth. Not only was she the product of the union of these powerful earldoms, but when you trace back her family tree, one finds people with houses like Valois, Bruce, Luxembourg, and if you go back far enough, you reach Charlemagne. One historian called Anne, quote, the most noble lady and princess born of the royal blood of diverse realms, lineally descending from princes, kings, emperors, and saints. Wealthy and well-born, no wonder the guys will be tripping over each other to gain her hand in marriage. Warwick was, at that time, the Arch-Yorkist. He was related by marriage to Richard, Duke of York, and therefore also to his sons, Edward, George, and Richard, who we of course later know as Edward IV, Clarence, and Richard III. The year before her birth, Anne's father was fighting at St Albans, and before too long regained the moniker the Kingmaker by placing Edward IV on the throne in 1461 after the victory at the Battle of Taunton. But of course, all that did not mean too much to Anne, so let's pull away from the tumult and focus on the subject of today's episode. She was the second of two daughters, the only two children that Warwick and his wife would have. Remember that, it's important. Her elder sister was called Isabel, and was five years older than her. There is no doubt that not having a son was a tremendous blow for Warwick, but he had little time to mourn the lack of a male heir, because he had a job to do. The following year, Warwick was named Captain of Calais, which, as I have said a dozen times at least, was England's last possession on the continent, and commanded her only standing army. It seems that his whole family went with them, which is a little unusual, as one would normally expect the children to remain at the family homestead. But, then again, the domestic unrest that was due to spell out into open war meant that perhaps he wished to get them out of harm's way. Calais was very much unlike almost any place in England at the time. It was a garrison town with a small hinterland surrounded by enemies. Anne would hardly have been living in squalor, but certainly would not have been the luxurious life that she may have led had she remained in England at this time. Then again, she was an infant, so one imagines she didn't notice. Insulated from the tumult in England, Anne was able to grow up in peace, but it also meant that she would not have seen much of her father. She and her sister, though, would have been very close with their mother, who largely remained at Calais. 
they would have been given the classic female education that one would have expected of super high-status noble girls. But, interestingly, they were not introduced to the Yorkist court of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. Normally, rich noble girls, especially heiresses, would be introduced at court as they approached their teenage years. It put them in the shop window for marriage, and also gave them vital experience in how to live in the frequently dangerous world of court. Then again, Warwick was no fan of the Woodvilles, and his girls were high status enough that they didn't need to be in the shop window, so perhaps this is not surprising. After the victory at Towton, Anne Neville returned to England, and would spend the next few years of her life at Middleham Castle in Yorkshire, a great fortress for Warwick and the Yorkists. Here, she would have lived in absolute luxury. She would have been attended by a huge number of servants, and the importance of her father meant that there would have been constant visitors and people offering fealty. While living there, she would have met for the first time the man who would become her future husband, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who went to the tutelage of Warwick in around 1464. But we will return to Richard in due course. While I have a moment, now's probably a decent time to talk about what Anne Neville looked like. Well, as usual, we are not sure. We have a few illustrations of her, but no portraits to speak of, and while we have some vague descriptions, let's not forget that flattery was always the order of the day when it came to women like Anne. She is depicted as a young woman with hair going all the way down to her waist, blonde of course, with a sloping form, small mouth, strong chin, and a wide forehead. Other than that, there isn't much sadly, so just picture in your mind a classic Plantagenet queen, and you probably aren't far off. Anne's movements in her childhood are, frankly, a bit of a mystery. One imagines that they would have been present at the coronation of Elizabeth Woodville, at family funerals and high-status tournaments like the Bastard of Burgundy's tournament at Smithfield, but there's nothing in the record to confirm this. Warwick was, of course, an ambitious man, but he had no plans to seize the crown for himself. He knew that his claim was too weak and it just wasn't worth the risk. What he wanted was for his daughters to marry into royal or ducal households and use that influence to increase his own prestige and wealth. Isabel was the eldest of the daughters, and therefore her marriage was the most pressing and important. And, in a shocking turn of events, it was controversial. Warwick aimed to marry her to the Duke of Clarence, the king's middle brother. This was all tied up with the power plays going on at court between the Woodvilles and the Nevilles, of which you need no introduction. The king vetoed the match, but since he had no legal ability to prevent it officially, that wasn't enough to stop it. After papal dispensation was obtained, required because they were first cousins, Isabel and Clarence were married in 1469 at Calais. This was a fabulous society wedding, far removed from the shady secret ceremony that wed Edward and Elizabeth Woodville, and there was no doubt what this all meant. This was all extremely good news for Anne. She was now the king's sister-in-law, not to mention also related by her sister's marriage to the Dukes of Burgundy, Exeter and Suffolk. More importantly though, With her sister married off, she was now the main focus of attention when it came to her marriage. When it came to female inheritance, the general principle was that lands would be split amongst the daughters of the lord on his death, and was generally up to him to work out how to divvy it up. Once married, those lands technically remained theirs, but in practice were controlled by their husbands. Anne was not quite the catch that Isabel had been, but she was still a real big prospect in the marriage market, because even a small slice of the Warwickian inheritance would be a huge amount of land, power and influence. Of course, the choice of her husband had nothing to do with her, it was down to her father, and his hand would be swayed by the changing course of events, because, hello, we're now in 1469, and remember what happened? That's right, 
Warwick seized control of the kingdom, killed some Woodvilles, accused Elizabeth's mother of being a witch, but was forced to release the king after much wrangling. Soon after that, Warwick left Edward's court, and along with Clarence, his wife Isabel, and Anne, they set sail for France to meet up with Margaret of Anjou. I talked about the negotiations between these two giants of English medieval history in episode 29, Margaret of Anjou, the second she-wolf, so I won't go into it all again, but the result of all the wrangling was this. Warwick would switch sides and support the Lancastrian cause to reinstate the king if Edward of Westminster, the Prince of Wales, would marry his daughter Anne. Edward would then rule as Lord Protector for the inept Henry VI, his father, and Warwick would be his chief advisor and confidant. On the 25th of July, 1470, Anne and Edward were officially betrothed at Chateau d'Amboise in the Loire Valley, their marriage and consummation dependent on Warwick keeping his promise of unseating Edward IV from his throne. Edward was three years older than his fiancée, but ostensibly they were both just pawns in their parents' game. Neither of them had a choice, and it is not clear when they met for the first time, but it is very likely that it would have been not long before they were formally betrothed. Let's not also forget that Edward and Anne had been on opposite sides of the Civil War until, like, a few weeks ago. This was nothing less than a power marriage, far as one could find from a love match, but then that was the life that Anne had been destined for all her life. It would not be the last time that she would marry her enemy to find a brighter future. There was a slight hitch in that they were found to be related in the fourth degree, though frankly at this point, who wasn't? So the French king dispatched an ambassador to Rome to gain papal dispensation. Now this was far more complicated than one might believe, because first they needed, for complicated reasons, to get three dispensations, not just one, to cover all their bases. While all this went on, no doubt the future husband and wife spent some time getting to know each other, nervously awaiting news from Rome, but most importantly, from England. Of course, the news from both ended up being very good. Warwick had overthrown Edward IV and restored Henry VI to the throne, and finally the dispensations from the Pope were also obtained. The marriage finally took place on the 13th of December, 1470, at Amboise. Now, for the life of me, I can't find a decent account of this royal match, but by all accounts, it was a fairly small affair, as most of the key guests that would have normally attended were too busy trying to stabilise England or in exile. It's the occupational hazard of having a royal wedding in the midst of a terribly complicated civil war. The marriage of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York is rightly lauded as a key moment in the process of healing England from the gaping wounds opened up by the Wars of the Roses, but let's not forget that Anne's marriage to Edward could have had a similar effect had Warwick managed to secure England against Edward IV's counterattack. This, too, was a union of the White Rose and Red. Of course, that is not what happened. While husband and wife were preparing to cross the Channel, Edward IV was landing in Yorkshire. Things went from bad to worse when Warwick's son-in-law, the Duke of Clarence, redefected back to his brother's side. Who knows what Isabel thought of all of this, but there you go. And then in two battles, Anne's life changed irrevocably forever. First at Barnet, her father was killed, and then at Tewkesbury, her husband was killed. Her marriage had lasted barely six months. She had been the Princess of Wales, daughter of England's most powerful magnate, and co-heiress of the greatest estates in the kingdom. Now, she was widowed and stranded in enemy country with her future all up in smoke. Her worst fears, though, would not be realised. For the most part, women in the Wars of the Roses were not treated nearly as harshly as the men. Edward IV viewed Anne as her father's pawn, as someone no more Lancastrian than he was. Let's not forget that he had married a Lancastrian widow himself. 
Therefore, he pardoned Anne, just as he had pardoned her sister and brother-in-law. She would not go on trial for treason. As for her inheritance, well, that's where things start to get very interesting. Her mother, Anne Beauchamp, would receive nothing from her husband's lands, but she still should have held on to her own lands, but things would not shake out that way. See, Clarence, as the husband of Warwick's eldest daughter, thought that he should be able to command all of it. All of Warwick's land, and the land that Beauchamp had brought when she married him. Now, this was clearly and obviously illegal, but it seems that no one much cared. Beauchamp was the wife of an arch-traitor, and to the victor of the spoils. She would remain in the sanctuary of Beaulieu Abbey, where she had gone after her husband's death, until after Bosworth. Now, why didn't her daughters help her out? Well, that's a very good question. The simple answer is greed. They needed their father's inheritance to keep themselves up and running, to maintain their position and ensure their safety. And of course, let's not forget Clarence, who never really gave up on his brother issues with Edward. If he couldn't be king, then being Earl of Warwick would have to do. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to Anne. She went to live with her sister and Clarence, but this was not a happy household. Clarence and Isabel wanted as much of Warwick's inheritance as they could get their hands on. Anne was in their way, but her position was massively weaker than theirs. She was the younger daughter, but most importantly, she was not married to the king's brother. She was not married at all. At this point, it looked like Anne would get nothing, as part of the deal when Clarence had rejoined the Yorkist fold was that he would inherit Warwick's land through the claims of his wife, and he was not interested in sharing any of it with his sister-in-law. Of course, he knew that if Anne was to remarry, then her husband would have a claim on all of this land and could challenge Clarence. He had no interest in that, and so hid Anne away in his household at Colharbour House on Thames Street in London, allegedly dressing her up as a servant in the kitchens. While this claim, which is from a chronicle that I will read to you in a second, is undoubtedly overblown, it is likely that Clarence would have hidden Anne away when potential suitors came to call. I imagine that their conversation would have gone something like this. <clears throat> now, let's go over our schedule once again, shall we? Petunia, when the Masons arrive, you will be... In the lounge, waiting to welcome them graciously to our home. Good. And, and Dudley, you will be... I'll be waiting to open the door. Excellent. And you? I'll be in my bedroom, making no noise and pretending that I don't exist. One imagines that she would also not have been especially thrilled with her situation, living with a man whose betrayal of her father and husband had led to both of their deaths and her chance of becoming queen. She would have quickly realised that she needed a powerful husband in her corner to count the powerful husband of her sister, and there was only one unmarried man in the kingdom who could take on Clarence. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, saw in Anne an opportunity to raise his own profile and get one over on his annoying elder brother. That said, we have no idea about how the courtship between the two started, and it is just as likely that Anne would have been an active participant. The historical consensus for years has been that all the wooing was done by Richard, but there is every chance that Anne was as keen on the match as him. Of course, that old view is most famously shown in Shakespeare's Richard III, which sees Gloucester tricking the angry but naive Anne into marrying him to further his own claim. Much has been made of the fact that she was marrying the man who had been on the other side of the fighting in the battles that had seen the deaths of her father and husband, but this was a marriage for survival. In this period of English history, you could not afford to bear grudges if you wanted to survive. You had to marry the most powerful person around, no matter what colour rose he fought for. 
What happened next is colourfully explained in the Crowland Chronicle. Quote, the quarrel in this Michaelmas term between the king's two brothers, and which proved difficult to settle, began when Richard, Duke of Gloucester, sought to make Anne his wife. This proposal did not suit the plans of his brother, the Duke of Clarence, who therefore had the girl hidden away so that his brother would not know where she was, since he feared a division of the inheritance. He wanted it to come to himself alone by the right of his wife, rather than to share it with someone else. The Duke of Gloucester, however, was so much the more astute that, having discovered the girl dressed as a kitchen maid in London, he had her moved in the sanctuary in St. Martin's. As a result, so much disputation arose between the brothers, and so many keen arguments were put forward on either side, with the greatest acuteness in the presence of the king, sitting in judgment in the council chamber, that all those who were present, even those learned in the law, marvelled at the profusion of the arguments which the princes produced for their own cases. Finally, King Edward, their loving brother, intervened and the whole dispute was settled. The Duke of Gloucester, once married to the aforesaid Anne, was to have such lands as were agreed between them through arbitrators, with all that was left remaining in the possession of the Duke of Clarence. Now, there are two ways of viewing this, and it really depends on how you view Anne. For proponents of Anne the Tragic Victim, this Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Yet another humiliation. After being widowed and effectively orphaned, she is forced to marry her worst enemy, who then engaged in a petty spat with his brother as they, like vultures, feasted on the dead carcass that was once her future. For the proponents of and the realist, as I will now call it, then this was her astutely looking at the lay of the land, seeking out the person who could best secure the claims to the inheritance that was rightfully hers, and then doing what needed to be done. The latter to me seems far more likely. Anne may have been a 15-year-old widow, 
but she was also her father's daughter. She was not a passive instrument anymore. The people who had once controlled her destiny were either dead or exiled. As a widow, the choice of husband was legally hers, and while it is unlikely that she really had much of a choice in the matter, given her circumstances, she went into this match as a partner in a new enterprise. If we dispense with the idea of Richard the Monster, then we see this marriage for what it was, a royal husband marrying a potentially rich heiress, a young widow marrying the king's brother who could protect her claims and provide her with security. She was also far from the only woman to marry her enemy during the Wars of the Roses, and she wasn't even alone in remarrying with such speed. Mark Beaufort, for example, married her fourth husband, Lord Stanley, only eight months after the death of her third husband, Henry Stafford. Richard, though, would never really get the fruit of the great inheritance that the marriage to Anne might have promised. I won't get into the nitty-gritty legal details, because frankly they are most tedious, but basically he failed to grab as much from Clarence as he would have wanted, and this was to say nothing of the other myriad claimants that were popping up seeking this manor or that castle. Gloucester did gain wealth, power and status from the match, but not as much as you might have thought. When the marriage between Richard and Anne took place is unclear, which suggests that it was another small private affair. The people of England really were starved of a good royal wedding in this period, though I imagine that was the last thing on their minds. The two would settle at one of Anne's childhood homes, Middleham in North Yorkshire. The next decade or so must have been the happiest of Anne's life. With Richard tasked by the king to keep an eye on the north of England, they would have spent far more time together than one might have expected a couple based so far away from London. The first task, of course, was to produce an heir. The continuation of the male line was vital for any noble, it was not just the worry of kings. With the combined land holdings of himself and his wife, they needed a son, and preferably a number of children on top of that, to pass off their lands to and marry off into other families. At the time of the marriage, Anne was about 17, which may seem young to us now for having children, but at the time it was quite normal. Unlike her sister-in-law, Elizabeth Woodville, however, Anne was not a prolific bearer of children. Indeed, she would only have one, a son who they named Edward, and whom history remembers as Edward of Middleham after the place of his birth. The date of his birth is disputed, but it was probably around 1473. We don't know why the couple never had any more children, but one suspects it was not for lack of trying. This period of history is full of couples who struggled to conceive healthy babies, the Woodvilles notwithstanding. It is highly unlikely that they would have considered one child sufficient for continuing the line, but one child is all they would have. That said, she did become an adoptive mother of sorts for her niece and nephew, Margaret and Edward, who came into her care after the deaths of their parents, and sister Isabel, and Richard's brother, Clarence. Isabel had died in childbirth. Clarence, if you recall, had been executed. Possibly a barrel of wine was involved. We can follow Anne's life a little around the country over the next ten years, as she would occasionally pop up at court, most notably while Richard and King Edward were off fighting in France, but it seems that she spent a great majority of her time at Midlam. There is one aspect of her life, though, that Anne and Richard are especially associated with, and that is piety. Though both were ruthless pragmatists, they shared a religious devotion that was unusual even for the time. They patronised their local church of St Mary and Alkelda in Midlam, and there were plans for establishing Chantry Colleges in both Midlam and Barnard Castle, but events would cause these projects not to come into fruition. They also gave generously to many churches and religious houses, including Durham Cathedral and Priory, as well as York Minster. 
and no doubt many other places, though records have not survived. Anne's absence from the surviving source material has given great fodder to all the Richard haters out there. Michael Hicks, for example, in his biography of Anne, described him as a, quote, egotist and no respecter of women, and accuses him of stealing her land and money before shutting her out completely. This seems a rather extreme view to take for a couple of reasons. First, it was not unusual for husbands to control their wives' lands. Indeed, that was the law and perfectly normal. Second, there is no indication that Anne would have chafed under these circumstances, if indeed it was the case. There are plenty of examples throughout history, and indeed in this podcast, of women who are perfectly content to leave the grubby business of local, national and international politics to their husbands, while they took on the more traditionally female roles such as the running of the household and organisation of the estates. Even Hicks admits that Anne was well cared for financially, and there frankly just isn't the evidence to suggest that Anne was anything more than a typical duchess. Nothing out of the ordinary at all. In 1483, though, everything changed. I went through all the gory details of the events that took place between Edward IV's death up to the usurpation of Richard in the last show, so again, I won't go over it, but it is worth looking at it from Anne's perspective. When it all started, she was with her husband at Medlam and would have seen Richard frantically gathering his troops together with Buckingham as they sought to intercept the Woodville-escorted Edward V on his way from Shropshire to London. She stayed there through the early stages of Richard's coup, arriving in mid-June after the appointment of Richard as Lord Protector, and the besieging of Elizabeth Woodville in Westminster Abbey. She based herself at Crosby House, and there watched as Richard began the purge of his enemies and former friends, including Earl Rivers and Lord Hastings, finally usurping the throne and imprisoning the former king and his brother in the tower. What Anne's view on all of this was is entirely unknown. However, it stretches credulity to believe that she did not know what was going on. The historical consensus is that Richard and Anne shared a close bond, and so it is highly likely that they would have discussed his ambitions. Let's not forget also that Anne had no love for Edward or his wife. He had been the one who had killed her father in battle. His regime had caused the destruction of her very comfortable life, and while of course she was married to a man who had played a key role in said destruction, it is very likely that she would have had few qualms about Richard's actions. One of the reasons given by Ricardian apologists for his usurpation was his genuine belief in the illegitimacy of his brother and his offspring, and that he and his wife were being cursed by witches. Whether that is true is anyone's guess, but given the religious zeal of both Richard and Anne, it cannot be discounted. That said, my personal view, for what it's worth, is that both Richard and Anne were acting out of pure opportunism and pragmatism. Richard saw an opportunity to seize the throne, and like countless men, past and future, he took it. Anne, whether consulted or not, went along with the ride, and along with it came the crown that had been denied her on the battlefield of Tewkesbury all those years before. She was the first queen to be crowned alongside her husband since Anna of Castile and Edward I. This would be a show that England had not seen for more than 150 years. The coronation itself took place in the first week of July. On the 4th, they travelled by royal barge from Westminster to the Tower, the traditional setting-off point for coronations. The next day, they rode out at the front of a huge procession of dukes, earls and knights, basically anyone who was anyone in the kingdom who wanted to remain someone. Anne was carried in a very fancy letter lined with white damask and with copious amounts of gold as well. Behind her came all of her ladies of honour, four carriages of them. This was the life that had been planned for her at birth, the future that Warwick had attempted to give her when he married her to the Lancastrian Edward of Westminster. She had achieved the future she was born to have, 
She just got there in a more unorthodox manner than had been envisaged. The procession made its way to Westminster Hall, where a great feast was held. The next day, Anne was dressed in a royal surcoat made from over 50 metres of purple velvet, lined with ermine and with gold tassels. Along with her husband, she made the short journey to Westminster Abbey, barefoot with her hair worn down. The procession was a who's who of prominent Yorkists, all carrying the symbolic regalia. She followed her husband in under a rich canopy. Her crown was carried by the teenage Earl of Wiltshire, and her train was supported by a number of ladies, including most famously Margaret Beaufort, who even then would have been plotting about how to get that crown off of the head of Anne's husband. At the head of the church were two thrones upon which the royal couple were sat. Richard's, of course, was central and slightly higher. She carried in one hand a sceptre, and the other a rod with a dove symbolising peace, and was crowned as Queen of England. After the procession out, there was a huge feast at Westminster Hall, of a similar opulence to the one that had been thrown for Elizabeth Woodville after her coronation, with 3,000 people being fed over a period of about five hours. No expense had been spared at any point in this coronation. It was all designed to show off the new regime. Richard's usurpation had been remarkably straightforward, but to secure it, he needed pageantry and lots of it. His wife was a vital part of the strategy. As a well-born lady, who was well thought of by everyone, he placed her front and centre in his propaganda campaign. The next stage of this campaign was a royal progress, a trip around the country to show off the new king and queen to their people. They first headed northwest through the Thames Valley, before heading northeast into Yorkshire, finally alighting at York itself. There, Edward of Midlam was invested as Prince of Wales and Lieutenant of Ireland. It was a ceremony of huge scale and great significance, which some have called a second coronation. It was the high point of Richard's kingship. From there, the royal couple went their separate ways. Richard continued on the progress, while Anne and Edward went home to Middleham. They remained there during Buckingham's Rebellion, but eventually Anne removed to Greenwich, which would be her new home away from home, though their official residence was at the Palace of Westminster. Her son would stay in Midland, possibly due to illness, though it may simply have been to continue his education away from the dangers of the capital. Anne's queenship was of a far more understated and quiet nature than the warlike Margaret of Anjou or involved nature of Elizabeth Woodville. Indeed, Anne was a return to the more classic model of queenship. She was a patron of the arts and of religious projects. Her influence was behind closed doors, not out there for all to see. She did not need to push her own relatives at court, because her relatives were already powerful, unlike the Woodvilles. That way, she was a success story in the otherwise very chequered history of medieval and early modern English-born queens. She also got involved in the reintegration society of the Woodville girls. After Elizabeth had done the deal with Richard to emerge from the Abbey, Richard kept up his end of the bargain and brought the five girls to court. This was partly, of course, to fulfil the terms of the agreement, but it was also sound strategy. These girls were dangerous, and so needed to have an eye kept on them. Anne was meant to be that eye. When these were added to the children of Clarence and her sister Isabel, Anne had quite the household of kids and teenagers to keep her busy. In the spring of 1484, the king and queen went on a second progress up north, which meant that they could be reunited with their son, but they wouldn't reach him in time. On the 9th of April, Edward died at home at Midlam. The chronicles are united in the portrayal of Anne and Richard's grief. The Crowland Chronicle says, quote, On a day not far off King Edward's anniversary, this only son, on whom 
through so many solemn oaths, all hope of the royal succession rested, died at Midlam Castle after a short illness. You might have seen the father and mother after hearing the news at Nottingham where they were staying, almost out of their minds for a short time when faced with sudden grief. Long-term listeners with exceptional memories may be reminded of the reaction of Henry I when his son William Adlin had died in the White Ship disaster back in the 12th century. The chronicler here very pointedly implies that this was divine retribution for the murder of Edward V by linking the date to the usurped king's ascension to the throne. But the description of the grief for Richard and Anne is not one of a king and queen distraught at the threat of the line of succession. They are referred to as a mother and father, clearly showing that this was the understandable reaction that two loving parents would have for the loss of their only child. This was the final turning point in Anne's life. From here on in, it was all downhill. The Chronicles all suggest that the death of their child drove a rift between the hitherto loving husband and wife as Anne began to retreat into the shadows. She was still young, only 27 or so, but there is a sense that she knew her life was coming to an end. Everything had been tied up in her boy. In a period dominated by mothers whose raison d'etre was to guide their sons to the kingship, she had failed, and so she began to waste away. Rumours began to spread of Richard beginning to consider ditching his wife in favour of none other than his niece, Elizabeth of York. Elizabeth had been betrothed to Henry Tudor during Buckingham's rebellion, and a marriage between the two made a deal of dynastic sense, as it could unite the split halves of the Yorkist camp. Whether this match was ever seriously considered is unknown, but rumours were so strong and widespread that Richard was forced to issue a public denial, stating that marrying his niece had, quote, never entered his thought or mind. Given everything that we know about Richard's piety, it seems unthinkable that he would consider getting a separation from his wife. Therefore, perhaps, this is all about preparing for his wife's death. Some, Shakespeare most famously, but also a great many sources, claim that Richard poisoned his wife in an attempt to clear a path to marrying his niece. Given the number of people he had killed on his way to the throne, it is tempting to think that he had no scruples at all that this was possible. But not to me. Maybe Richard did have a long-term plan to marry Elizabeth. Maybe not. We'll never know, but I do not believe that he poisoned Anne. Indeed, if that were his plan, then he would not have spent so much time and effort promoting others to the position of heir. First the young Earl of Warwick, and then the Earl of Lincoln. Anne's final days were spent largely alone. She and Richard apparently were no longer sharing the conjugal bed, and may have stopped seeing each other altogether. She died on the 16th of March, 1485, on the day of a total eclipse of the sun. Those who did not ascribe the death of poison attributed it to a broken heart of the death of her son, but a more likely cause of death was TB. Her death would become overshadowed by the coming collapse of Richard's reign and his defeat and death at Bosworth, which means that we don't have a whole lot to go on. There was not time to construct a suitable tomb, which means that we do not know exactly where she was buried. It was a far from fitting end to a fairly extraordinary life. Anne was only on the throne for about a year and a half, so it's not really fair to compare her to some of her contemporaries who had far more time to make a mark. Her reign was marked by attempts to secure the position of her husband and the grief at the death of her only son. She would not be alone, though, in being a queen who struggled to reproduce. Indeed, when one discounts the two Woodville queens, would you like to hazard a guess at the last Queen of England before Anne to give birth to more than one child while on the throne? It was Philippa of Hainaut, the wife of Edward III. 
and indeed none would do so again until Anne of Denmark in the 17th century. In fact, come to think of it, all of Anne's healthy children were born while she was Queen of Scots. As Queen of England, they all died young, so actually it was Henrietta Maria, wife of Charles II, for 300 years, unless you had a parent with Woodville as a surname, you were doomed to have problems conceiving a child as Queen of England. Now there are some mitigating circumstances in there, I grant you, but even so, it is a truly remarkable statistic. Perhaps then, that puts Anne's problems into perspective. She was a fairly popular queen, even while having a husband whose relationship with his people was dubious at best. When compared to her two predecessors, she led an understated life as queen, but was still dutiful to her husband and diligent in her duties until the last few months of her life. But it is her life before she became queen that really marks her out as being interesting. She began her life with everything, daughter of the most powerful magnate in England, betrothed to the heir of the King of England, before losing it all and reduced to being hidden away in the household of her nasty, nasty brother-in-law. From there, she took her destiny into her own hands and paired with the only person who could protect her, even though he was one of the architects of her downfall. From there, she was Richard's near-constant companion as he secured his position in the North and supported him in his coups that led him to the crown and her title of Queen of England. She has been painted by many as the tragic victim, but that suggests a passivity in her that belies her true strength. She was as ruthless and pragmatic as any of the other great women of the Wars of the Roses. But in the end, much like many, she lost her final battle, dying alone and in grief. Before I go, I wanted to answer a question from listener Gonzalo from Buenos Aires in Argentina, who sent it in via email. He asked, If I could recommend any other podcasts about the Wars of the Roses, but I will expand it a little to cover medieval podcasts in general. To keep my answer brief, I'm going to recommend two. Of course, the History of England podcast speaks for itself. David Crowther is the big daddy of medieval English history podcasting. He is the stage, and the rest of us are merely players. There is, though, another recent discovery of mine. A wonderful podcast for medieval history geeks such as myself. It's called... The Medieval Death Trip, produced by Patrick Lane. It's a monthly show which examines the weird and wonderful world of medieval texts. It really took me back to my undergraduate days, and it's a truly compelling lesson. If you enjoy some of the more colourful long quotes that I read in this podcast, then this is the show for you. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can all have a listen. Next time, we will discuss England's final medieval queen, Elizabeth of York. She's appeared piecemeal in a lot of past episodes, and it's finally time for her to come centre stage. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 